What approach should you take when your patient doesn't respond to an antidepressant? The answer may be different than what you might expect. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is currently Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Director of Adult Outpatient Services, and Assistant Director for Residency Training at SUNY Upstate Medical University, where he also directs the Depression and Anxiety Disorders Research Program. His clinical and research interests include treatment-resistant depression and anxiety, psychosomatic illness, adult psychopharmacology, and antidepressant augmentation for efficacy and tolerability. Welcome to ReachMD. Great. Thank you for having me. Dr. Schwartz, you have spent much of your research life studying depression. What do you suggest to our primary care colleagues if they encounter a patient who does not respond to the first antidepressant? Well, I think my usual mentality is, again, confirm your diagnosis, make sure you are dealing with a fully depressed patient. And in assuming that you've made a good diagnosis, next thing is make sure your medication has been used to its fullest degree. One of the most common mistakes I'll see in practice is that many of my clinician friends will hang out at the low doses of a drug. The idea is the lower dose certainly has less side effect. Many psychiatrists, I think, feel that the middle to higher doses of antidepressants really carry a better effect for treating depression. Again, the way the drugs are studied through the FDA, we really can't show you that FDA data supports using the full dose range because many of the package inserts will tell you that all the doses came out equal. But what they don't tell you is the studies didn't enroll 1,000 patients, which would give you more statistical power to show those subtle differences. So I'm a very big advocate if your patient has been on a low dose, go to the middle dose, wait a few weeks, and maybe even a several weeks, then go to the full dose and wait again. So step one is make sure you've dosed very aggressively. Doesn't that require some courage, especially from our primary care colleagues? Well, it takes pushing the envelope a little bit, but you're really doing that within you know, FDA guidelines. I think you know, the average psychiatrist would suggest that they're used to using these doses, and we're not suggesting using abnormally high doses. If I use Zoloft as an example, it's FDA approved between 50 and 200 milligrams. And if somebody's not responding to 50, going to 100 is reasonable, then 150, then 200. Now, I wouldn't suggest necessarily going to 300, 400, or 500. Mm -hmm. But within that package insert range, I think you have a lot of safety. And if you're worried about medical legal problems, you're you're relatively safe there. You would have to contend with more serotonin-based side effects, likely, the higher you go. And, And again, I'm pretty sure most of our primary care colleagues have had people on low doses of serotonin side effects, and and they probably do know how to manage those or stop the medication. So I don't think they should be as squeamish to use drugs within the appropriate ranges. Okay. Well, I was thinking, for example, of fluoxetine, where if you look at the package insert, we can actually go quite high and I think much higher than most primary care docs may be comfortable. Yeah, no, true. And again, with that product or, or Prozac, certainly using a low dose like 20 milligrams is improving effective, but I think 40 or 60 is not unreasonable either. And certainly in the world of OCD, we're, we're comfortable using it 60 to 80 sometimes. But again, the higher you go with anyone, your, your side effect burden will go up. And I think part of it is just comfort level. I'm not very comfortable maybe in primary care dosing the antihypertensive very high. But I think if I had a lot of hypertensives in my practice, I would hopefully get myself used to it and seek out advice and get more aggressive in treating blood pressure. And 
you know, if I could implore folks maybe in primary care that are using lower doses to pick one or two antidepressants they're most comfortable with, but get very used to using the full dose range, I think their comfort level would improve. Mm -hmm. Great point. Now, let's say they've done that, that they've used whatever SSRI brand X, and they've pushed the dose up over time to the maximum allowed by the FDA or suggested by the FDA. Then what? Well, unfortunately, that happens a lot. I would say in that situation, maybe you know, upwards of a third of our patients really aren't any better. So uh, I think we face this dilemma a lot. One idea is always the argument, do you switch medications? Do you go to another antidepressant or do you add a new antidepressant and use two of them together? My understanding of kind of the statistics of this is that clinicians in primary care will choose to switch drugs and stick with monotherapies where psychiatrists tend to add more products together. I'm not sure there's any clear data that either approach is better, worse, or the same. The more recent STAR-D trials, I think, somewhat gave the edge to augmentation or adding products together, but it wasn't very remarkable. It was something, but it just wasn't stellar. So my advice would be, whatever you're comfortable with, if you're more comfortable switching, I think that's okay. The next thing is you want to pick a second drug. In my practice, I would not pick a second SSRI. What I think we've done is if you've really used an SSRI and you've gone after the serotonin circuits in the brain, and you've used a good dose, you've kind of shown that's probably not the cause of the patient's depression. So I'm a very big advocate of maybe switching from an SSRI to an SNRI. That's a serotonin norepinephrine drug such as Cymbalta or Effexor. Or you could even use Welbutrin, which is a norepinephrine dopamine drug. And what you're really doing is changing the patterns of chemicals in the patient's brain is really what you're trying to do. And you're not beating a dead horse using the same mechanism again. So my advice, if you're going to switch, you should probably switch class of medication, stay within FDA labeling if you can, and again, use the full dose range if you need to. Just to summarize so far, so pick a drug or two that you use a lot, know them well, be willing to push the dose up to the FDA-recommended max. If that doesn't work, consider changing to a different mechanism of action. Then what? (laughs) Well, uh, let me play devil's advocate. If you've really had no response to your first drug, I think switching is a reasonable thing. The other scenario is what if the patient's 30 to 50% better on their first drug? When I'm dealing with more treatment-resistant patients that really haven't gotten better in a while, I don't want to give up my 30% improvement. So I think adding medications is a reasonable option. If you don't want to switch to lose the initial efficacy, I think adding medications on top. And again, if you start with an SSRI, probably the most common combination strategy would be to add the antidepressant Welbutrin right on top of the SSRI. So I think another way to think about this is to go ahead and combine drugs. Now, to maybe answer your question, what if you've either switched or you've already combined or augmented and the patient still has not done any better? Again, I think you kind of go back to the drawing board and you ask yourself, what chemical patterns or mechanism of action in the brain have I not tried to affect? So one idea, if you've actually manipulated serotonin and norepinephrine, you better find a way to stimulate dopamine. And again, you could use the Wellbutrin product, maybe a stimulant off-label. One idea is that I challenge kind of my residents here at our program to think about the brain as a puzzle. And if you're having more treatment-resistant illness, you haven't found the right puzzle pieces yet. And the pieces are the, the medications we use and what chemicals they can increase or decrease in the brain. So the idea is to be aggressive, treat things with you know, good dosing, good duration, but do something that's different. The idea would be kind of keep moving through the puzzle pieces until you find the one that works better for your patient. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Schwartz. We are discussing treatment-resistant depression. 
Okay, so now we're in the augmentation arena, maybe thinking about bupropion as an augmentation strategy. What other options do people have? Well, there's two ways to approach it. You know, what seems to be the standard of care, meaning what are many psychiatrists doing versus what does the literature suggest? Let me answer the literature first. I think that gives you the most backing to your practice. There's not tons of literature, but clearly adding lithium, pretending almost that the patient's a bipolar patient, dosing that appropriately, monitoring for good effects and side effects has the most data in the literature. I think it's a pretty reasonable strategy if you're comfortable with the lithium product. And then thyroid hormone, particularly Cytomel, the more active uh, version of thyroid hormone, has a lot of data, uh, relatively speaking. So those are the two most common if you actually went and did a literature search. Now, the dilemma is those are a little bit dated, and they certainly have probably more side effects and end organ damage compared to something like Wellbutrin. But probably the greatest data is with some of those older mechanisms. The other augmentation strategies we do see a lot of now uh, outside of Wellbutrin, the atypical antipsychotics. Almost every atypical, except for the new one in Vega, I have seen papers on. Some of these products have double-blind placebo-controlled studies, which are nice to see. My understanding, again, kind of through grapevine and, and research posters and things we've seen is uh, the product Abilify, uh, aripiprazole, looks like it might be heading towards a depression augmentation approval. So it, it's nice to see maybe there's going to be a different product line that we could use and we'd have a lot more cloud or FDA approvals to support what we're doing in fact, Seroquel was approved for monotherapy for bipolar depression. And even though it's not unipolar depression, it's awfully close. So I think there's a role for the atypical antipsychotics. And another class that does bail me out from time to time again are the true stimulants, such as Ritalin and uh, methylphenidate and all the brand name varieties that go with that, and Dexedrine as well. Very robust drugs to facilitate norepinephrine and dopamine, which, which I found helpful in more than a few of my patients. But again, completely off-label. We don't have any FDA approvals using that for depression. So there are plenty of ideas out there. Now, it seems like the stimulant augmentation has something that's fallen out of favor for a lot of practitioners. Any guesses to why? Yeah, I would guess it has to do with the addiction rates. Similar to, you know, some folks are worried about using the benzodiazepine sedatives and anxiety. One idea is you're, you're going to use an addictive substance when there are plenty of other antidepressants that are not addictive. So I don't think running right out to a Ritalin right out of the starting gate makes sense. But if your patient's been through, you know, two, three, maybe even four other trials of other things or mixtures of things, and particularly if you see vegetative symptoms, and if your people are excessively fatigued, they can't focus, they can't concentrate, their memory is bad, they have no drive or motivation, I really think you want dopamine. And probably one of the best dopamine drugs we're going to have right now is a stimulant like Ritalin. So I kind of would want a patient profile based on the symptoms they have. But I, I think the addiction risk, certainly it's a class 2 drug. They are more addictive than things like Valium. Again, you're going to want to count pills and make sure they don't fill them early. Patients with an addictive history, you probably wouldn't choose this as an option. Now, at what point do you suggest to our primary care friends that they send these tough patients to us? Well, in my neck of the woods, if you can find a psychiatrist with openings, uh, <laughs> you would have that luxury. Uh, um, true. But, you know, if you had the luxury and you had a good friend that's a psychiatrist that you could refer to, I think if you've tried maybe two solid monotherapies, so maybe you start with an SSRI, use that for a full dose and duration. Maybe you go to an SNRI like Cymbalta or effects or a full dose, full duration possibly then go to Wellbutrin next. wouldn't bother me what order you went with those, but if you use three different drugs, two or three different drugs from two or three different classes and nothing has worked, probably at that point, I don't know of many primary care clinicians that are comfortable mixing and matching or kind of think through the you know, all the receptors and the chemicals that you know, we in psychiatry like to think about. 
So maybe after two or three solid failures of medication, it's probably good to at least get a, a consult or second opinion. Every now and then I have colleagues here in primary care, I'll see their patients and I'll kind of send back a cookbook. You know, if in my practice I'd consider these four things next, the patient can then go back to the primary care doctor, discuss what each of them is comfortable or not comfortable with. And the other idea is sometimes they can stay out of my practice if the primary care clinician isn't comfortable with any of my ideas. So I would two, three solid trials uh, would be a good time to refer. Any other tips for treating these folks that don't respond to the usual things the first time or two? Again, psychotherapy. We have a lot of patients that really don't do psychotherapy and a re-referral to do that. Electroconvulsive therapy, also a very good treatment for certain patients. The vagus nerve stimulator, uh, which has been around a while. It's a pacemaker for depression. Again, it doesn't cure everybody by any chance, but for a niche of patients, it's a very successful treatment. So again, there are certainly other options that are a little bit more aggressive out there. We'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Thomas Schwartz. We have been discussing how to treat depression after the first antidepressant doesn't work. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. 